Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, I speak with Helen Molinos, Chief Executive of Power, a charity providing free advocacy information and advice for hundreds of thousands of people across the UK. Helen joined Power as their Chief Executive earlier this year and has brought in a non-hierarchical leadership model. We speak about Helen's motivations, how non-hierarchical leadership works, how she's gone about changing the culture of power in this short time, and the impact this can have on an organisation. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Helen Molino speaking about non-hierarchical leadership. I'm delighted to be joined today by Helen Molinos, Chief Executive of Power. Hello, Helen. Welcome to Charity Chats. Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me today. It's our absolute pleasure. Let's start by asking, what is your leadership background and what has formed your desire to become a non-hierarchical leader? Sure. Um, So to talk about non-hierarchical leadership, Sam, I think we have to talk about hierarchical leadership. Sure. My my worldview in general is that hierarchical leadership is a bit old fashioned, old hat and outdated. I feel it doesn't really work in 2020. And I would really question whether it ever worked at any point in my career over 27 years. So my background, mm-hmm. um, 20 years in corporate life, corporate life was very strict, autocratic, um, hierarchical organizations. And, you know, these were environments where um, I would say injected fear really into staff through very strict ways of working. You also have to remember, I entered the workplace into the early 90s. So I was a Gen Xer managed by a lot of conventional baby boomers. I had a double life. I was an activist outside of work. Uh, So, you know, most weekends, um, evenings, I was lobbying, uh, protesting for social change, LBGTQI rights, um, HIV AIDS charities. You know, during the day, I was in a blue pinstripe suit, so very different life. And, you know, in the evenings, I was going to punk rock and indie rock gigs, right? So pretty, pretty different, you know, lives. Um, I think what was interesting about that is, you know, I ended up in the charity sector about six, seven years ago. But I think because of my other outside activities and my double life, I was a pretty outspoken employee in these tight knit spaces. And I think in a lot of ways, maybe I was trying to get fired, but one of my managers actually described me as a as an unmanageable maverick and genuine troublemaker who drives innovation and affects positive change. So I wasn't sure if that was like a backhanded compliment or um, but, yeah, these are the kinds of words that were used to describe me very much like maverick, troublemaker. Um, So I did a lot of work um, for many years, you know, again, in corporate life and special crisis management, M&A, you know, anything that required a a very cognitively diverse mind. Uh, Yeah. And that's really my background. I mean, it sounds like you were, in a way, you were ahead of your time. I suppose working in the charity sector, that seems to be a kind of a kind of more easy marriage, maybe, of, of uh, you know, working, engaging with people on a very kind of personal level um, and uh, and sharing your your kind of your joys and your experiences. And there's a kind of a blurry line then, I suppose. That's my experience anyway, working in the charity sector and, and you as a person. You kind of see, for me, it's largely having one identity, but from what you were saying in your life back then, you kind of you had these two lives. That must have been quite a challenge for you 
was it ha- kind of having a secret life in a way or, or were you able to kind of it was silo? having very much a secret life yeah. yeah it was very much having a secret life so I would say people that I used to go to punk rock gigs with didn't know what I did for a living because it was very uncool to say you worked in a corporate you know and had a steady salary <laughs> um people in my activist circles didn't know what I did either because it was pretty uncool to work for a corporate <laughs> and people in my corporate circles you know so I had these three spheres and lives going on. It was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, I would say you're right about the charity sector. And I have found that the charity sector has enabled me to be far more my authentic self. So who I am at work is, is very much who I am at home. And you're right, those circles do get blurred because I think working in the charity sector, you find yourself socializing. And because you can be your authentic self, you know, it just means that you know, you're, you're, you have no secrets, I suppose, uh, which is also a great enabler as a leader as well. And I guess, you know, talking about hierarchical leadership and hierarchical structures, I suppose there are a lot of negatives now. And, and I guess we've seen that with all sorts of revelations around certain industries and, you know, the, the top boss getting away with all sorts of things, you know, unethical things as well, and uh, and behavior that, you know, just isn't acceptable, but they get away with it because they are the boss. And I suppose the the non-hierarchical, is that is that kind of an antidote to some of those negative behaviors, do you think? Yeah, and I think when we talk about non-hierarchical, you know, let's be a little bit real here, you know, the charity sector is governed by the charity committee and sets of laws and there are rules and structures that need to be placed. So we're not talking about non-hierarchical in the sense of, you know, a completely structuralist, you know, flat organization. I don't think that that actually exists anywhere, whether it's in the private sector or the charity sector. Um, I think for me, this is about collaboration, engagement, um, real equity. And I say equity and not equality because equity is a little bit different. I think it's about making sure to create the organization where you're able to hear and harvest the best ideas, pick the right people for the jobs, respecting difference, promoting really um, um, a way of working, which is a lot more sort of democratic and ways in which we've been able to do this at power. So I've been at power since May of this year. I started my role in the pandemic. And some examples of this to give you an idea of how I'm bringing non-hierarchical leadership into power. My first challenge is, as a chief executive was to prepare a strategy. Now in hierarchical organizations, chief execs go away, they write the strategy and then they present it to the staff and they say, here is the strategy, everyone get behind it. And staff just go, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> what's that thing? Nothing to do with my job. But actually what I did was something different because I've worked for many leaders like that and I grumbled, you know, um, and I reflected a lot about what it felt like to not be the chief executive. So being the chief executive, I thought, you know what? Uh, a lot of people who've worked here, some have been here 10 years, 15 years of power. They're the experts. They're on the front line of human rights advocacy. So what I did is I ran a series of strategy development workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, so digital interaction. I think uh, Zoom is a great, great uh, leveler of power and privilege because everyone's just one box on the screen. I invited all of our staff, all 421 staff, all 115 volunteers, all of our trustees. And I said to the trustees, I want you to come, but you're part of the gang. You're not here in a hierarchical structure. Um, I'm going to be asking eight questions. So these were questions like, 
Um, what is our identity? Is our identity the same now as it was in 1996 when we uh, were established? Who do we serve and why? What are their unmet needs? Um, how is society changing? Where is power's position in that society? Um, and so on. And um, 138 people participated in these sessions, you know, took the time out several hours, you know, at a time. And they were able to lend their voices. And because we use Slido technology, you didn't know who was saying anything. So oh. actually, it was a largely silent feedback in which everybody could see all the answers coming in, but no one knew who they were. So you remove the power of who said what. And actually, everybody then idea. had a really equal voice. Yeah, it was, it was really yeah. fantastic. So when I presented the strategy to my board of trustees in August, I said, this is not Helen's strategy. This is not the trustee strategy. This is our collective strategy, mm. which has taken the ingredients, all the inputs from these workshops and all the different surveys we've done. Um, and this is collectively power strategy. Um, and this was also not about staff and volunteer engagement only, but also listening to beneficiaries and members' voices and looking at some of our cases. Um, and looking at some of our structures. So that's one example. I mean, another example is that we're taking that strategy development concept forward now. The strategy's out there. We've now gone to staff and said, right, now it's time to make it happen. So this is not just a document that sits in the ether. What we're going to do this year, and this is the first time Power's done this, is we've gone out and said to people, using the strategy, what are your ideas about changes you'd like to make on your own teams to be able to help deliver the strategy? So we've gone out to quite a few teams. People have prepared business plans bottoms up. They'll be evaluated. And what we're going to do is we're going to create a competitive structure for people to compete for investment funds. But again, everybody will have an equal chance, um, all the best ideas, but the ideas will not be judged by where somebody sits in the organization, but right. based on the greatest impact it would have for our beneficiaries and charitable objects and our strategy. So it's not about where you sit, it's about who's got the best idea and who's got the best proposal. So that's another example. A third example I'll give you is, I'm very big on staff and volunteer-led initiatives. So my colleagues will tell you that if somebody comes to me with a great idea, I'm like, yep, go for it. So the kinds of things we've launched in the last few months, all led by staff and volunteers, mean, you know, when I say nothing to do with it, I mean very little to do with it, you know, other than giving them some guidelines and frameworks about do's and don'ts. So mm -hmm. things like podcast series, um, we've launched Facebook drop-ins, totally run by staff, non-manager staff. We have set up an anti-racism group who's preparing some recommendations to the board of trustees about how we can take a journey towards becoming anti-racist, fundraising, new campaigning and influencing and lobbying initiatives. And these are very much led by my staff. You know, again, they have some rules, they have some structures and guidelines, but this isn't, you know, almost a top-down hierarchy, which is saying, you must do this. It's people coming to me and saying, can I have permission to do this? And can I have budget to do this? And can I have your support to do this? Um, so it's really about framing it. So that's some of the idea of some examples of non-hierarchical ways of working. This might sound like a... Uh blunt question but kind of what's in it for your staff if if they're being asked to come up with ideas kind of new initiatives is it that they are getting any kind of financial reward or is it the kudos of coming up with an idea that the organization then takes forward or is it about helping people what kind of what what is what is motivating people to to think about kind of organizational directions and strategies i work with the most exceptional group of people sam 
And they come to work every day, not for financial reward. They come, I mean, it's the charity sector, let's be honest, you know, the charity sector doesn't pay like the private sector. They are so motivated. You know, we do human rights advocacy work. So we support people to uphold rights and voices in a whole uh, load of areas in public services, anywhere from the NHS, it could be immigration, it could be housing, it could be benefits, it could be about basic needs like food parcels and medication. You know, this year during the coronavirus, we, we supported 200,000 people. And I am constantly in awe of the people I work with, who again and again, in crisis situations, deal with some really difficult cases of discrimination and oppression for people of all walks of life. You know, we support anyone who's eight-year-old, who could be in a mental health um, institution, people in prisons, people in hospitals, people in care homes, all the way up to 100 plus. And the thing that I think excites my staff about this new way of working is they've come out of a period of austerity. So having a new chief exec who's saying, you know what, we're going to actually become even more impactful, you know, to people and society and the beneficiaries we serve. I think they share very much a passion to better society and to better the lives of the beneficiaries that we serve. And I'm so lucky in that way that that is just comes with the territory of doing human rights work. You're looking at uh, non-hierarchical leadership and this is presumably this is this is new to to power. This is a this is a kind of a new um, process and a new culture that you're you're forming is it yes what have you found as the challenges of creating uh, this uh, this culture at your organization and, and what have you learned from these uh, these challenges yeah I think one of the funniest challenges that I didn't expect I think a lot of this is about mindset as well so and also it's about matching the power that acts externally with the power that acts internally. So I'll give you an example. So think about the average power advocate argues for a living. They don't see barriers. They don't see boundaries when it comes to pursuing rights and helping people. You know, they are fearless in the outside. And now giving them permission to say, okay, inside the charity, we're going to create a culture that practices what we preach. And those same skills that you have on the outside and that same mindset of actually not accepting something that you're unhappy with and being able to actually um, speak up is, is really interesting. So the challenge is posed is that when I went out and I've been going out to the organization, so it's not like this has happened in like one big announcement. It has to do with a lot of the behaviors. And I think it's about role modeling and a lot of the role modeling that fellow leaders around me are, are, are also doing. So saying to your staff and giving permission to say, anyone can raise anything to anyone. All voices should and must be heard. Your position or role is not a barrier to affecting change or, or, or having a voice. And also just simply just saying, yeah, if you have an idea, just ask, email me. So some staff are like, okay, I'm just going to email the chief exec. Never done that before. And even like staff actually doing that, we're like, can I just email you? Like, do I need to copy in my manager? I was like, well, why are you copying in your manager? Just, you have an idea, just email me. You have a criticism, just email me. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been really funny is when you give permission like this to staff, they sometimes don't know what to do with it. So, you know, people would write to me and I'd say, oh, great. I want to talk to you a bit more about this, Sam. And then we'd 
get on a phone and you'd sort of think, okay, I'm alone with the chief executive here. Uh, and then if you had a great idea, I'd say to you, okay, Sam, let's do this. That sounds great. What a fantastic idea. Or if you come to me with a criticism or something that needs to change, I'll say, hey, Sam, thanks for bringing this to me. I'm going to do something about this and act on it. And that in itself has kind of freaked people out a little bit because they don't know what to do with that power or permission. And so some people have really ridden with it, but other people are still getting used to this idea. You know, I mean, I have a busy diary, but for example, the other thing is I don't have a personal assistant and I don't want one because I don't want to have a guard dog. I want people to access me. And that that really is different than other what people have experienced. So this idea that they can just email me and I'm going to be the one to pick up the email and, you know, I'm not going to pass it along. So I, I think that that's interesting. I would imagine that one of the challenges, as you mentioned, was the fact that you're extremely busy and and that um, you you may find there's suddenly an influx of people saying, could we try this? Could we try that? Is is the guidance you're giving people kind of mindful of, of that? Presumably it is. It is. So something like the business planning process is looking to sweep up most of the good ideas, right? right. Because if we have 421 staff and 115 volunteers, I, I'm trying to also create a bit of an equality of, of opportunity as well here because out of 421 people, there's probably about 50 or 60 who regularly feel comfortable just talking to me. Right. And then everybody else is still pretty shy. So this is another way of making sure everybody has equal shot, you know, at um, different opportunities as well. You know, it, it hasn't been a problem yet. Um, but I think, you know, we set up staff network groups. We also work very closely with our staff consultation group. Um, we set up a lot of task and finish groups. So I think that there are ways that it's not just, you know, that I'm involved in all these conversations, you know, where appropriate, we're setting up the right mechanisms to make them happen. How long has this been going on for? When did this kind of, when did you initiate this kind of change in, in leadership model? So at Power, I would have started in May. So I've just been there about seven months. Right. Prior to that, I've worked in sort of change, innovation roles, strategy development roles throughout the charity sector, and then prior to that in sort of corporate life. So this is my first chief executive role. And I just saw it as an opportunity to sort of set up something that I think would appeal to me if I was on the other side of it. And I thought, well, actually, I want to be the kind of leader that I would have liked to have had, you know, in their position. sitting here listening to you I kind of think you know I wish hope one day I have the courage to to do that I'm not a chief executive one day maybe I hope to be but uh, I can only imagine you know what kind of courage that must take especially going into an organization where you've got a board of trustees already in position in post you know got staff who are used to doing things a certain way going in saying I want to come up with a brand new very different way of doing things did you did you find there was any kind of pushback or any kind of challenges talking to the board when you first started my board of trustees are exceptional and they very much knew that hiring me was an unconventional hire so they were not under any delusions and you know they took risks right in hiring me so they've been really really positive and i think that they know that i respect structure, policies, you know, charity commission rules, charity laws in all of this and balance that with 
really democratic engagement and collaboration. But also, I'm bringing them into this collaboration, you know, so they're starting to get experiences with some of our staff and perspectives that they've never had before. So it's, I think, benefiting everyone. But no, I'm really, really lucky. I have a very encouraging board. Um, you know, they know, Sam, with me, they've hired a straight talking lady. So, you know, whether they like it or not, you know, this is this is this is who they've hired. But they've been really exceptional, actually, really, really supportive and encouraging, you know. And I think sometimes if I think I've gone too far, they say, no, keep going. You know, you haven't gone far enough. So I've been really, really yeah. lucky to have a, a great board of trustees. I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this who are quite envious of your board of trustees, Helen. The um, I guess also the, the scenario that we're in, obviously with COVID-19, disruption that's caused since March, really, here in the UK, is, is that, um, do you think that's affected, kind of helped or hindered you putting in place this new leadership model? Yeah, I think we've had challenges with COVID. You know, the thing that worries me the most is like well-being of my staff, you know, the yeah. isolation for all of us, right? Like sitting at home, it's, it's not it's not a great place for any of us to be. Um, I think in some ways, COVID and the virtual working has actually accelerated this model a little bit because again, Zoom is this great enabler, you know, and mm. Zoom and Teams and, and those kinds of devices means everybody can sort of um, engage. Think about also how much ground I can cover virtually, you know, from my flat in Islington, yeah. rather than actually going up and down the country to everywhere where power teams are nationally. So, and lastly, I know this sounds a bit shallow, but actually having, I'm not great with names. So actually, if I'm in a, you know, Zoom session with a hundred staff, I yeah. can see their name <laughs> and not, you know, in a face-to-face -face situation, think, oh, what's their name? I forgot their name, you know? So, um, you know, quite shallowly it's actually been great that way I think it's been hard though because I mean I know this sounds crazy but we've done all this and yet I've never physically met 99% of my staff wow. think about that yeah yeah I might talk to them every day but I've I've never physically met 99% of my staff it's, it's a really kind of strange thing to think about isn't it but I guess you know there, there are colleagues of mine that I haven't met and I I guess on one level that seems kind of natural now but then I suppose also there's the you know not being in the same space as somebody still seems quite alien doesn't it so it's super weird I mean you know I wonder are they tall are they fat are they thin you know sort of you know yeah. I don't know I don't really know dimensions because I can only see from the neck up you know I have no idea you know they could be part octopus you know and have eight tentacles yeah absolutely you know? <laughs> I mean it's exciting, underneath the zoom screen you know? who knows yeah, you know? Right, you know. <laughs> it is exciting <laughs> who might I meet you know a mystical creature one day yeah absolutely and I mean, in terms of the, do you think with the board, do you think that the, the COVID-19 situation, did that have any effects on their willingness to try new things? I mean, kind of, they hired you in, in the middle of, well, not the middle, but, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, didn't they? So do you think, has that made an impact on their willingness to take risks? From the sounds of it, they're, a, you know, they're a very kind of, um, they're not risk averse, but they're also kind of dead keen and passionate about the cause and, and want the best for the, the staff, which is good. I think they recognized that power needed, you know, was ready for an exciting new direction in the next yeah. five years. So really, I think they created the foundation for me to come in and make changes. 
I think there are things over the last six or seven months as a leader, I would have never have expected to happen, you know, so the things I thought, you know, the things like virtual working, I thought this is going to be a disaster. How is this going to work? We're actually not a problem at all. Mm. Um, and then other things came up that you sort of think, well, mm, I didn't expect that, you know, so, but no, I, th- I think that actually they were ready. They were really supportive. And I mean, look, the board of trustees, you know, when, you know, any board is really not there to just say yes to things you know they they should be a critical friend Mm -hmm. they absolutely have to be upholding the charitable objects um they absolutely at all times have to be thinking about what's right for the beneficiaries of the charity and there has been a lot of respectful debate along the way and i'm just lucky enough again that i have that opportunity to work with them work with staff work with volunteers work with colleagues Uh, but no it's it's a pretty exceptional organization i'm really really lucky to be here What have been the successes of your non-hierarchical leadership model? And what would you say to other charity leaders listening to this about whether or not to employ it? I'll give you kind of my perspectives on this, my 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 wisdom, I suppose. And I don't know if it is wisdom, but this is just my there's there's probably a couple of things I've learned, four things I've learned. So the first is that, you know, this idea of like, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. Sure. I think there's something, if charity leaders are listening to this, in that you need to respect and big up other people's skills and experiences and know when other people are better suited to actually action something on behalf of the charity. And their job title shouldn't come into this. So I think that is the first thing I would say is just because you're the chief exec doesn't mean you know anything about anything, you know. Um, And that's actually a healthy thing to say, you know, is there somebody better who could be doing something in the charity or actioning something in the charity? Um, The second is, the second thing I've learned is really it's far better to rely on a coalition of the willing in your charity who are working with you towards a common goal for a better world, who feel that ownership, that shared purpose with you, and are empowered to act to deliver your strategy and vision with you. Um, If that means you work in smaller teams that have delegated authority to make decisions, um, I'll tell you, Sam, it takes far longer to work this way. So if you are somebody who's impatient or somebody who doesn't want to take the long way around, this is not the way to go. But the result is you get, again, people who are very much coalition of the willing. And, and I'll tell you, not everybody likes the changes, but at least people know that they've had a chance to kind of contribute and it's co-designed some of that. So I think that that's quite important. The third thing I would say is always, always, if you're going to go down this road, you have to question the conventional leadership model that you were brought up in in your career. So if you're going to go down this road, question those models and remember and cast your mind back to when you weren't in a leadership position. Think about some of the bullshit you were fed and think about the importance of integrity. So if you're going to go down this route, again, practice what you preach. So, you know, this idea of non-hierarchical leadership has to apply to you as well. But also this has to be about Think about, um, you know, I've had a lot of managers who are kings and queens, very autocratic. Um, I think be a wizard who teaches and empowers others. Share your skills. Don't hoard knowledge, you know, empower others. Create the leaders of tomorrow, you know. So for me, gosh, if I could, you know, start to build a succession plan of amazing people, you know, who work with me, who can replace me, 
the charity is so much better for that. I shouldn't be threatened by bright young things, you know, who are working with me. I should be actually really encouraged um, and empowered. So I should be, you know, again, it's about that wizard leadership. Um, share all of that. And the last thing I would say is if you're going to go down this route, be have thick skin, be vulnerable to criticism, different perspectives. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Share your power. And I think that's the last thing I would probably say. Helen Molinos, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Well, thanks, Sam. It's been a real pleasure to be on and, and talk to you about non-hierarchical leadership. big thank you to Helen Molinos for sharing her knowledge and expertise with us. Speaking with Helen, there's certainly much more to talk about and hopefully we can have her back on the show soon. It sounds like non-hierarchical leadership is working well at power and fits with the existing culture that staff have because of the type of work they do and the board have because of their willingness to take measured risks to further the impact and reach that power has. Over the past year, Power has supported over 200,000 people, which is astonishing and vital given the many challenges that everyone, especially vulnerable people, have faced due to the COVID-19 pandemic and still face. In Helen's own words, one motivation of creating a non-hierarchical leadership model in your charity is to make sure to create the organisation where you're able to hear and harvest the best ideas. I think it takes a lot of courage to come and implement a new culture, even with support from staff and the board. And from speaking with Helen, it sounds like it has come about, at least partly, because of who she is. As the chief executive and one without a PA, she is balancing the trials and tribulations faced by those in charge with being open to unfiltered feedback from her hundreds of staff. By her own admission, Helen is a straight-talking lady, and this sounds like a vital characteristic to ensure that non-hierarchical leadership models are effective and efficient. Helen has also come across as both confident and modest and gives credit to everyone else, which is, in my view, a key trait of a very good leader. The role of digital and the remote culture we've all been forced into by the COVID-19 pandemic are factors requiring changes in leadership and organisational models and indeed may necessitate an overhaul of many charity practices from now on. For Helen, this means that she's been able to cover more ground digitally than if she were to travel around the country meeting her staff. A possible benefit for staff, especially in national organisations, may be the opportunity to get to know their chief executive and have the chance to develop more effective relationships with colleagues who are geographically far away. Helen mentioned how digital communication platforms like Zoom, Google Teams and others can help with non-hierarchical leadership models, not only by giving people literal face time with one another, no matter their location and role, but also equalising the opportunity to engage with their leaders. From Helen's point of view, it is far easier to rely on a coalition of the willing, and though this takes more time, the impact of a unified and hard-working, focused team is ultimately worth it. It's not just short-term successes either. All charity leaders should be thinking about succession, the legacy they want to create for their organisations, and the contribution their leadership can make to the sector in terms of developing new leaders, new talent, and mentoring their staff to step up. Share your power is the key lesson that I've taken from speaking with Helen. And to me, non-hierarchical leadership sounds like the model best suited to doing this. We know that the world has changed 
and the next few years, complex and challenging as they're likely to be, need us all to find new ways of working and for organisations to change the way they operate. Could this be the starting pistol for the progressive change that we, our organisations and the sector need in order to meet these challenges? We should all take power from this and channel it into doing what we can for a better world. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear hear your feedback either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. You can also find all our contact details there. We're also on social media too. And Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.